I remember when I was a kid and the buffet was the in thing. <laughs> yeah, right. Not, not as much as when I was a kid. It was like the place to be was the buffet. That was the eating place. And I thought as a kid how heavenly, how paradise-like would it be if I could eat and eat and eat and eat. And I remember being at the buffet. And I don't remember a lot of things, but I remember this particular time being at the buffet. It must have been one of the first times. <laughs> and I remember experiencing some of the greatest pain <laughs> I have ever experienced in my life. It was excruciatingly painful eating so much food. And boy, did I quickly learn my lesson. Perspective meant everything to me. And by the way, I have not forgotten that lesson to this day. Isn't that amazing? It's almost like we should all let our kids have one moment where they can eat as much as they want, and then they will learn. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of kidding there. If having perspective of the consequences of eating too much is important for you to properly eat and live rightly, then how much more important is it that we have the right perspective of the destinies that are fast approaching every person? Of the realities of salvation and the realities of judgment, the two destinies that are fast approaching every single living person. We need the right perspective if we are to live rightly in this world. And isn't this the problem? Sadly, so many of us professing believers, and from time to time, every single one of us, loses sight of the perspective. We lose sight of the realities of the coming judgment and salvation, and so we live poorly in this life. We rather live for the here and now, almost like it's a buffet, right? Like, this is it. And so we gorge ourselves on this world, trying to hold on to everything, because we forget and lose sight that this is not our home. This is not our destiny. This is not where we belong. How badly do we need to hear from God constantly and be reminded so that we have the right perspective of this life? Last week, we con contrasted the glorious future that's awaiting the believing servants of God with the terrifying future that awaits those who are living in rebellion against God, if you remember. And we did this in order to give us perspective. And that was verses 1 through 16 of chapter 65. What we saw was that the future awaiting the rebel was awful and terrifying and that of judgment, eternal judgment. And we contrasted the glories that await those who are being saved and will be saved. And we said they won't eat, they will be without drink, but the other will eat and drink to their fill forever. Incredible contrasting destinies that we need to have before our eyes. 
And I want to ask you a question. Have you noticed that when God describes the realities of judgment and the realities of salvation, that he never holds back? Just look whenever you see the realities of the judgment that's coming. And look at whenever you see the realities of salvation that's coming. God gives blunt, profound, incredible pictures before our minds. He doesn't hold back. Judgment appears incredibly cruel. And salvation appears almost fancifully almost like a fantasy in its greatness, like something you can never imagine, something unreal in how glorious it is. And so, if heaven sounds too good to be true, and judgment sounds too bad to be true, what should we conclude? And here's what I think we need to get from this. And here's what I think the church needs to understand from everything we're going to look at today. Maybe God is better than we ever thought he was. Maybe God is better than we ever thought he was. Perhaps the terribleness of judgment and the goodness of salvation are directly proportionate to how good our God is. Maybe the real problem is that we have lost sight of how good our God is. And we need to regain our sight of the greatness of God. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the glories of God's eternal salvation in his kingdom in order to see just how good God really is. So that you will trust him, so that you will delight in him, so that you will be released from your bondage to this world, so that you will be able to love and give and sacrifice and proclaim the gospel no matter what people think of you, fearlessly. And this only happens when we see the goodness of God. And what better place to see the goodness of God than to see the glories that await us. For in the glories that await us do we see the goodness of God like we never see it otherwise. So when we see these glories, just like we looked at the judgments of God and we saw this is what God hates, and we can see what God loves in light of what he hates, so do I want us to look at the, the, the glories of heaven and see the goodness of our God. So first, God promises that he will create a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. Verse 17, the first part. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. God is saying here that he is going to recreate everything. He's going to make everything new. And the language here is the same language used in Genesis. We were told that God created the first heavens and the first earth. And here God will completely make everything new. It will be a complete makeover, right? This recreating means everything will be cleansed and be purified from sin. No longer will sin have a place on this earth. Everything harmful will be burned and destroyed. 
the prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, will be finally, perfectly fulfilled. The words heaven and earth here are meant to communicate the totality of everything. Everything will be made new. A new heaven and new earth encompass the totality. We need to see it as encompassing everything. But that's not all new heaven and new earth mean. The new heavens also indicate to us that God will dwell with us. The new heavens and the new earth means that God will dwell with us. Revelation 21 verse 3 draws the same conclusion using the very same language that's used here. Heaven is to be understood as the place where God dwells. And here we see that heaven will invade the earth. And God will live with us in favor forever with his redeemed world. This will really be cosmic paradise where God reigns supreme forever. Now, if you read what God says here, it's absolutely clear that God is going to, that God wants to do this, right? And it should not be surprising to us that God can do this if he is the creator of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1. It should not be surprising that he has the power to accomplish what he says he's going to accomplish if we believe in the God of the Bible. So God says he's going to do this, and he will do this. So my question for you is, how are we to think of this new creation? In other words, how are we to think of the newness of this creation? In some ways, this is going to be new and different. It's going to be continuous and yet discontinuous with the old creation. In other words, it will be a complete renovation or revolution of the existing reality. It's going to be the same pattern, the same stuff, but it's going to be renewed, transformed. But God does not throw out his pattern, does he? Let me give you a few examples. For instance, 1 Corinthians 15, 44 gives us a description of our new glorified bodies that will be given to help us to understand what it will be like. And your body is going to rot, right? It's going to deteriorate. Every one of our bodies, unless Christ returns first, is going to rot and deteriorate, right? And so we'll be given new bodies that in some sense will be similar, but will not rot or will not deteriorate, right? It will be a glorified body. The newness is a transformational newness. An unimaginable newness that yet will in some ways resemble the old body. We won't age, we won't get sick, and many other things we could talk about. 2 Peter 3, verse 6 gives us an example that can help us understand this new creation. We are told that the earth will be destroyed, right? And so we wonder, what does that mean? And then he goes on to describe the destroying of the earth as being compared to the flood, right? Where the flood waters purified and judged the world, right? So we can understand what it means that he will destroy by understanding the flood. Just as the flood destroyed and judged the earth through water, so will God destroy and judge the earth through fire. And the earth will be destroyed again in a similar way as before, except with fire. It'll be purified and it'll be glorified. Jesus' resurrected body is an example of this new creation and what it will be like. He ate, he drank, and he talked, and he was recognizable. 
but yet he was glorified. One way to understand this um, is kind of like imagining something you had that went really bad, like a computer. It got a virus, right? And it was ruined. It, couldn't, it didn't work properly, right? The maker of the computer gives you a new one, an updated one. The same stuff, the same type of material as the old, not a new design, but this one is updated to the point where it is un- incorruptible. It is better. It will never wear out. It will never not fulfill its function forever. You might wonder, why doesn't God start from scratch? Why doesn't he start a new pattern? Why doesn't he do something totally new? And the answer is, it's our theology of creation that we go back to, right? What did God say when he created the world? He said, it is good. It is good. He doesn't have to start with a new pattern. It's good, but it's going to be glorified. So what this means is that in the most basic way of understanding it, that creation will fully, completely, without any possibility of failure, fulfill her original purpose. Redeemed creation will shine forth the glory of God as it has never done before. Everything will magnify God and his glory perfectly. Isn't it amazing that man has been doing everything he can to transform himself, to fix himself, to recreate himself, but every single time he has failed, and it's actually gotten worse, hasn't it? Man is a miserable failure at fixing things. It will require the miraculous work of God to bring about real lasting change. And this is exactly what God says he is going to do. This is what he promises to do. He will recreate everything in the most marvelous, unimaginable way in his glorious kingdom. And the rest of this ver- these verses simply describe what this new creation will look like. We see that in our new creation, every troubling thought, every Troubling thought from the former creation will be erased from our memory. We read, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. You know, painful and troubling thoughts are just a part of the world we live in, isn't it? We can't even imagine life without painful and troubling thoughts. It's almost like it's just natural to us. We simply cannot imagine a world without them. You can't escape from it or imagine what it would be like without these troubling thoughts. And the new heavens and the new earth, not only will reality be changed so that there won't be any troubling thoughts that will come, but also your troubled and bad memories will be forgotten forever. Everything that is all troubling will be forgotten either in the sense of not bothering you or completely being wiped out from our memory. And you'll never be affected by bad memories forever. For some of us, this is pretty incredible. Some of us have experienced incredibly awful things. Things that haunt us every single day. And we can never get rid of. One day, if you are in Christ, those things will no longer bother you forever. Incredible. Now we have to keep in mind that the troubles of this world that turn into troubling memories do serve an important purpose for us in this world, don't they? I just want to remind us that all things are working together for our good, aren't they? Even the troubling things in this world are working for our good. They constantly remind us that we need God. 
And if we were not reminded that we needed God, we wouldn't think we needed Him. So we need to thank God even for our troubling thoughts. We don't love them, we don't like them, but we thank God for the outcome that they bring to our lives, that they constantly are bringing us to God. And without them, we would be very much fine, and we would think we're okay without Him. But there will be no need for such memories in the future kingdom of God, for we will perfectly rely on God forever, and our hearts will be perfectly in line with God. We will live dependently on Him, perfectly. In heaven, we don't outgrow our dependence on God, by the way. <laughs> the state of perfection is to depend on Him completely and utterly with joy. Everything in the new creation will also have the effect of provoking greater and greater joy in everything forever. We see that in verses 18 through 19. But be glad and rejoice forever. <laughs> In that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I'll rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. The but here is an important word because it's contrasting with the former memories that will be forgotten. Not only will the former memories be forgotten, but they will be replaced only with rejoicing and gladness forever. We have brought a lot of grief into this world, haven't we? We've even grieved God by our sin and our wickedness. But all of these things will be forgotten. The greatness of the rejoicing here is clearly emphasized in these verses in a, new, in a number of ways. And one of the ways is that you're commanded right now to begin rejoicing in the forever. Uh, the, the wording here is saying, it is such a great gladness and such a great joy that even right now, even right now, you're to rejoice in this eternal reality of gladness. It is that great and that, re and that glad. You might, well, that's the right way of saying it, but, but you know what I mean. We're to begin right now and today. And the greatness of the joy is also emphasized through the repetition of words. That's often how they would emphasize something, right? At least in the root, the gladness and rejoicing is emphasized three times here. It's said repeatedly to emphasize it. What great rejoicing, what great gladness. And the completeness and the fullness of the joy is brought out in the fact that God himself will rejoice and be glad perfectly forever in his recreated people, in his recreated world. You see, in the past, our sin has grieved God, hasn't it? And the Bible clearly says that. But because sin will be eradicated, God will no longer be sorrowful over us but will only rejoice over us. God himself says here, and this is just remarkable, I mean, how can we comprehend this? How can we even think about this? That God will rejoice over us and be glad in his people. He'll be glad in their gladness. And we will rejoice in him. That's what Jerusalem means. His people will rejoice in him. You know, it's interesting that in the past we were told in all their affliction he was afflicted. So also, now, in all their rejoicing, he will rejoice. Why will everything have the effect of provoking joy? Because God will fashion his creation to fulfill its intended purpose perfectly. In such a world cannot but compel joy. All creation will be fashioned and directed and aligned rightly 
so that it will perform its intended function and that it will bring glory and honor to God the way it was supposed to do. In other words, the original intent that God had in mind at the beginning of creation will be fulfilled, which means that our experience will match our new situation. Think about that. Our experience will match our new situation. Our joy that is ours will be matched by what we experience. Whereas today, we don't always experience that joy, do we? And we get a taste of it today. Only a little bit of it. Only a shadow of the reality that awaits us. But then our circumstances and our experience will match the reality of what is true. We will glorify God perfectly and the result will be the experience of perfect joy. You might ask, what does this gladness and joy look like? Wouldn't it be nice to have a little understanding of what this will be like? And yes, we get a taste of it when we come to know Christ. For the first time, we know what true joy is. We get a taste of it, right? But in reality, we have no clue. We are so clouded by this fallen world. We could not understand it even if we tried. In fact, God does not try really hard to explain it to us. He just tells us it is so. And so we need to say, yes, Lord Jesus, it is so. (laughs) And it will be so. In the new creation, you'll experience no fears, no insecurities, no failures, but rather only the fullness of blessing. We see this in verses 20 through 23. Have you ever gone on vacation and tried really hard to leave behind all the marks of the sin-cursed world, but found that you just couldn't do it no matter how hard you tried? Maybe the, the the moment you pulled out of the parking lot, you were upset at your children, <laughs> right? You just can't escape the reality of the fallen world, no matter how hard you try. You can't shake the fears and insecurities wherever you go. They go with you wherever you go. So what is there to fear in this life? What are the enemies that are around us? Well, there is the fear of death. And what a great enemy death is. Is there a greater enemy that we face? Every one of us, we just don't think about it, but we are facing death. It is fast approaching every one of us. Nothing we can do about it. We have no power over it, and you have no wisdom to defeat it. Death is our greatest enemy. Just think of those people who are in that building complex in Florida. Many of them died in their sleep instantaneously. Isaiah gives us an example in these verses of the most disturbing type of death. A child recently born, dying. Or a young man who has not lived the fullness of days, dying. You know, death itself is disturbing, but how much more disturbing is premature death? We are also not to fear the basic, we also do fear, I should say, oftentimes the basic loss of the provisions that we have in our lives, don't we? Our sin in this fallen world has has made our lives so unpredictable. We don't even know if we'll have the basic provisions. You see, we are the worst enemies, aren't we, of the environment. You know, some people say we got to protect the ozone layer, right? Yeah, and we got to take care of our, our stuff and throw things away in the right place. Absolutely, I agree with that. But the greatest danger to our environment is our sin. We are the greatest danger to our environment. 
And unless God graciously provides the basic needs and necessities for us, we are hopeless rebels. For this reason, we have so many needs and therefore so many insecurities. In the Old Testament, God warned his people if they were disobedient, God would take their provisions away from them. In a number of places, God told them that if they disobeyed his covenant, that they would build their houses, but they wouldn't live in them. They would plant their vineyards, but they would not eat from their vineyards. Other people would live in their houses. Other people would eat of their fruit. And this is exactly what happened to them when they disobeyed God. So they lived in the fearful reality that was constantly hanging over their heads. These insecurities and these fears. But God says that none of these fears will be a reality in the new creation. Not only is God going to take away the curse and its effects, but he's going to replace them with blessing. Incredible thoughts. And the new creation There will be no more fear of death. No infant will live only a few days. Someone who would die at a hundred years old would be considered only a youth. The sinner, a cursed person who had lived a hundred years would have been considered living a full, a a short life, I should say. A hundred years. That's a long life for a sinner who's accursed. In other words, there'll be no more untimely death. You will be like an oak tree. And an oak tree is a symbol of permanence and strength and longevity. In a new creation, there will also be no more fear of not having enough provisions, of having a roof over our heads or food to eat. We will build houses and we will live in them and they will be perfect houses, right? (laughs) We will plant vineyards and we will eat of them. In other words, there'll be no more curse, but only blessing. Not only that, but in the new creation, you'll enjoy the work of your hands to the fullest. Work is not a four-letter word. Well, it is, but it isn't. You know what I mean. (laughs) Work is a good word. In fact, we were working before the fall. Work is something we're going to do in the new creation. It's a good thing, and we will no longer complain about it. And by the way, we should never complain about our work. We should be thankful for our work. But in the new creation, there will be nothing to complain about. Our work will bring the the most abundant blessings you could ever imagine. It'll be completely blessed. Why is this? Why will it be blessed? Because we will be the offspring of the Lord. (laughs) We will be the offspring that the Lord has blessed. That's why. Notice the 4 in verse 23, which can mean because. And the seed is the seed of the offspring of the servant. In chapter 53, verse 10. They will be blessed solely because they are the offspring of the Messiah. In him comes all of our blessings. And that's the reason why we will be blessed. Now, you might be wondering something here. It might be a little confusing here. Because we're talking about death and birth in the new heavens and the new earth. And yet we know that those things will not be a reality in the final kingdom of God, in the new heavens and the new earth. And for this reason, some people believe verses 17 through 25 is referring to the millennial kingdom. And that would be the 1,000 years where Christ reigns between the rapture and the end of the age. Now, we can disagree on our views of the end times. That's perfectly fine here. 
It's okay as long as we hold to those basic truths that do not change, right? But those who do believe that this passage refers to the millennial kingdom have difficulties that they have to overcome as well. Every view has difficulties here. Verse 17, where it says that this is referring to the new heavens and new earth, that does not sound like the millennial kingdom to me. And similar language of verse 17 appears in Revelation 21, verse 3, referring to the new creation. This also has references to forever, which appears to me to be talking about the eternal kingdom of God. And as I said, every view has its problems, doesn't it? Every view has its difficulties. And I think that's okay when we're talking about eternal things. Those things are challenging to understand. And there will always be things that are hard to comprehend. But I want to tell you the reason why I think that this is talking about the final new creation of the heavens and the earth. And I think there is used language that we understand to talk about things that we cannot understand, right? How else would you understand something that is impossible for us to comprehend, like eternal life and longevity of life that will never end, unless we use something that we could understand to explain it with? So I think when it says no infant would fail to enjoy life, nor elderly person come short of of, um, full fulfillment of life, I don't think this requires that there needs to be death in this eternal state. In the new creation, you will experience perfect, unhindered fellowship with God. Verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. One of the complaints of the prayer of chapter 64 was that God did not seem to hear. God seemed to be so far away, he didn't hear them, right? And uh, you've experienced this, I'm sure, as well. I've experienced it, where it seems like God isn't listening. God doesn't seem to hear our prayers. And that's a reality of the fallen world we live in, right? And God says that the problem is not me not hearing. It's your iniquities have separated you from me. It's our sin that's the problem, right? And prayer can be awfully hard, can't it? Prayer is so difficult sometimes. In the new creation, there will be such fellowship with God that before you think of calling on God, He will hear you and He will answer you. The point here is that there will be perfect and complete fellowship with God. Such fellowship that we can never comprehend. So yes, there will be prayer in heaven. Prayer is simply communication with God. We will continue to communicate with God in heaven. But it will be completely perfect and unhindered prayer talking to God. This means in God's kingdom, his love and care will never be questioned forever. In God's kingdom, there will never be a lack of love. It will be impossible to be so close to God and know it and not feel perfectly loved. Everything about the new creation will be characterized by perfect peace. We see in verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. One of the greatest plagues on us is animosity, isn't it? You can't go more than a few moments without experiencing some kind of animosity with people. This world is filled with animosity, and we see this in the animals, right? The picture we're given here. Uh, We see it in the nature around us. It's exemplified through the wolf and the lion and the snake here. Symbols of animosity. 
But God's kingdom will be characterized by peace as expressed through the image of the predator, the wolf, the lion, who, uh, in, in how they relate to the preyed, who is the lamb and the ox, and that they are grazing together. And the language here is that they are so, so unified that it's almost like they are one. <laughs> it's incredible unity that's expressed here in the language. And the point here is that there will be no more animosity. There will be perfect peace. Why is the snake eating dust? What is to be communicated in this? And what I think, it's probably an allusion to Genesis 3 verse 15, where the serpent would be cursed. We would be delivered from our curse, and he will be cursed forever. And so I think that's the picture we're to see of this. Have you ever had an experience where you tasted this incredible peace, and then just as quickly as it came, it was gone? Well, God's kingdom will be so secure that no predator, not even Satan, the greatest enemy, will have any ability to disrupt it forever. Incredible peace. So what we have before us is an incredible, breathtaking image of God's eternal kingdom. The reality behind these images can be so great and real that it can be hard for us to see the reality of them. We can wonder, is this really true? Can this possibly be true? It just sounds so great, almost fanciful. Well, the question comes down to whether God is really that good. That's what it comes down to, right? Faith says that God is better than you thought he was. Faith says God is astonishingly good to his people. And this passage is a great reminder that God is better than we could ever imagine him to be. One of the symptoms of failing to see God's goodness and his promises is that we will hold on to the goodness and the promises of this world and we will make it our home. We will fight to hold on to this life and make it everything and to suck everything out of it that we can. And I think this is a huge problem with American Christianity and I think we are so blinded by it that we don't recognize it. But when you and I, by faith, see the goodness of God and his promises, you will live differently. You will trust him. You will hold fast to him. You will listen to him. You will delight in him. You will rejoice in him. You will not hold as tightly to this world, but be freed from the things of this world. You will be compelled to do good and to proclaim the gospel regardless of what people think about you. You will live courageously. And I think this is the point of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. We're in light of the eternal realities that await us. We read, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And that is where these realities should drive us to. If these realities, these incredibly great realities are not yours, if they do not belong to you, then how should you respond? And I think Isaiah 55 verse 1 is the answer. Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The answer is come to the fountain of all good things. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, our minds are amazed today. We are filled with amazement, God. These realities belong to every one of your children. 
We who were lost, we were who were standing rightly under your judgment, who were awaiting the sentence that was rightfully ours, for whom the wrath of God was hanging over our heads. We are the very ones who are promised these incredible realities, who have tasted and seen of the goodness of God and who are longing now for the kingdom that belongs to us. When the former things will not be remembered, but only the glorious realities of your eternal kingdom. Lord, we pray, Lord, our response is come, Lord Jesus, come soon. Lord, what else can we pray but come, Lord Jesus? And I pray that you would enable every one of us to see with the eyes of faith the goodness of our God. And if anyone is outside of your favor, if anyone is still standing under your judgment, I pray that you would save them right now at this moment. Deliver them from your wrath, God. May their eyes be open to the goodness of God. May they repent and believe in you, Jesus. And may they be saved. And may all the goodness of God, all these blessings belong to them as well. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for reminding us and keeping our faith alive, Lord. Reminding us that there is something better, infinitely better than this world. And it is coming soon. In Jesus' name. Amen.